Section E of Liber Amoris, or the New Pygmalion, by William Hazlitt. From To the Same, in Continuation, to the End. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Nick Duncan Liber Amoris by William Hazlitt To the same, in continuation. My dear friend, the next day I felt almost as sailors must do after a violent storm overnight that has subsided toward daybreak. The morning was a dull and stupid calm, and I found she was unwell in consequence of what had happened. In the evening I grew more uneasy, and determined on going into the country for a week or two. I gathered up the fragments of the locket of her hair, and the little bronze statue which was strewn about the floor, kissed them, folded them up in a sheet of paper, and sent them to her, with these lines written in pencil on the outside. Pieces of a broken heart, to be kept in remembrance of the unhappy, Farewell. No notice was taken, nor did I expect any. The following morning I requested Betsy to pack up my box for me, as I should go out of town the next day, and at the same time wrote a note to her sister to say, I should take it as a favour if she would please to accept the enclosed copies of Vicar of Wakefield, The Man of Feeling, and the nature of art in lieu of three volumes of my own writings, which I had given her on different occasions in the course of our acquaintance. I was piqued, in fact, that she should have these to show as proofs of my weakness, and as if, I thought, the way to win her was by plaguing her with my own performances. She sent me word back that the books I had sent were of no use to her, and that I should have those I wished for in the afternoon. But she could not before, as she had lent them to her sister, Mrs. M. I said, very well, but observed, laughing, to Betsy, it's a bad rule to give and take. So, if Sarah won't have these books, you must. They're very pretty ones, I assure you. She curtsied and took them, according to the family custom. In the afternoon, when I came back to tea, I found the little girl on her knees busy packing up my things, and a large paper parcel on the table, which I could not at first tell what to make of. On opening it, however, I found that it contained a number of volumes which I had given her at different times, among others a little prayer book bound in crimson velvet, with green silk linings. She kissed it twenty times when she received it and said it was the prettiest present in the world, and that she would show it to her aunt, who would be very proud of it. And all these she had returned together. Her name in the title page was cut out of all of them. I doubted at that instant whether she had done this before or after I had sent for them back, and I have doubted of it since. But there is no occasion to suppose her ugly all over with hypocrisy. Poor little thing, she has enough to answer for as it is. I asked Betsy if she could carry the message for me, and she said, Yes. Will you tell your sister, then, 
that I do not want all of these books, and give my love to her, and say that I shall be obliged if she will keep these that I have sent back, and tell her that it is only those of my own writing that I think unworthy of her. What do you think the little imp made answer? She raised herself on the other side of the table where she stood, as if inspired by the genius of the place, and said, And those are the ones that she prizes most. If there were ever words spoken that could revive the dead, these were the words. Let me kiss them, and forget my ears have heard aught else. I said, Are you sure of that? She said, Yes, quite sure. I told her, If I could be, I should be very different from what I was. And I became so that instant, for these casual words carried assurance to my heart of her esteem, that once implied, I had proof enough of her fondness. Oh, how I felt at that moment! Restored to love, hope, and joy by a breath, which I had caught by the merest accident, and which I might have pined in absence and mute despair for want of hearing. I did not know how to contain myself. I was childish, wanton, drunk with pleasure. I gave Betsy a twenty-shilling note, which I happened to have in my hand, and on her asking, What's this for, sir? I said, It's for you. Don't you think it worth that to be made happy? You once made me very wretched by some words I heard you drop, and now you have made me as happy, and all I wish you is, when you grow up, that you may find one to love you as well as I do your sister, that you may love better than she does me. I continued in this state of delirium or dotage all that day and the next, talked incessantly, laughed at everything, and was so extravagant nobody could tell what was the matter with me. I murmured her name, I blessed her, I folded her to my heart in delicious fondness, I called her by my own name, I worshipped her, I was mad for her, I told P that I should laugh in her face if ever she pretended not to like me again. Her mother came in and said she hoped I would excuse Sarah's coming up. Oh, ma'am, I said, I have no wish to see her. I feel her at my heart. She does not hate me after all, and I wish for nothing. Let her come when she will. She is to me welcomer than light, than life. But let it be in her own sweet time, and at her own dear pleasure. Betsy also told me that she was so glad to get the books back. I, however, sobered and wavered, by degrees, from seeing nothing of her, day after day. In less than a week I was devoted to the infernal gods. I could hold out no longer than Monday evening following. I sent a message to her. She returned an ambiguous answer, but she came up. Pity me, my friend, for the shame of this recital. Pity me for the pain of having ever to make it. If the spirits of mortal creatures, purified by faith and hope, can, according to the highest assurances ever, during thousands of years of smooth-rolling eternity and balmy, sainted repose, forget the pain, the toil, the anguish, the helplessness, and the despair they have suffered here in this frail being, 
that I may forget that withering hour, and her, that fair, pale form that entered, my inhuman betrayer, and my only earthly love. She said, Did you wish to speak to me, sir? I said, Yes, may I not speak to you? I wanted to see you and to be friends. I rose up and offered her an armchair which stood facing, bowed on it and knelt to her adoring. She said, going, If that's all, I have nothing to say. I replied, Why do you treat me thus? What have I done to become thus hateful to you? Answer, I always told you I had no affection for you. You may suppose that this was a blow after the imaginary honeymoon in which I had passed the preceding week. I was stunned by it. My heart sunk within me. I contrived to say, Nay, my dear girl, not always neither. For did you not once, if I may presume to look back on those happy, happy times, when you were sitting on my knee as usual, embracing and embraced, and I asked you, could you not love me at last? Did you not make answer in the softest tones that ever man heard? I could easily say so, whether I did or not. You should judge by my actions. Was I to blame in taking you at your word, when every hope I had depended on your sincerity? And did you not say since, when I came back, your feelings to me were the same as ever? Why then is your behaviour so different? S. Is it nothing your exposing me to the whole house in the way that you did the other evening? H. Nay, that was the consequence of your cruel reception of me, not the cause of it. I had better have gone away last year, as I proposed to do, unless you would give me some pledge of your fidelity. But it was your own offer that I should remain. Why should I go? You said, why could we not go on the same as we had done, and say nothing about the word forever? S. And how did you behave when you returned? H. That was all forgiven when we last parted. Your last words were, I should find you the same as ever, when I came home. Did you not that very day enchant and madden me over once again by the purest kisses and embraces, and did I not go from you, as I said, adoring, confiding, with every assurance of mutual esteem and friendship? S. Yes, and in your absence I found that you had told my aunt what had passed between us. H. It was to induce her to extort your real sentiments from you, that you might no longer make secret of your true regard for me, which your actions but not your words confessed. S. I own I have been guilty of improprieties, which you have gone and repeated, not only in the house, but out of it. So it has come to my ears from various quarters, as if I was a light character. And I am determined in my future to be guided by the advice of my relations, and particularly my aunt, whom I consider as my best friend, and keep every lodger at a proper distance. You will find hereafter that her favourite lodger, whom she visits daily, 
had left the house, so that she might easily make and keep this vow of extraordinary self-denial. Precious little December! Yet her aunt, her best friend, says, No, sir, no, Sarah's no hypocrite, which I was fool enough to believe, and yet my great unpardonable offence is to have entertained passing doubts on this delicate point. I said, Whatever errors I have committed arose from my anxiety to have everything explained to her honour. My conduct showed that I had that at heart, and that I built on the purity of her character as on a rock. My esteem for her amounted to adoration. She did not want adoration. It was only when anything happened to imply that I had been mistaken, that I had committed any extravagance, because I could not bear to think of her short of perfection. She was far from perfection, she replied with an air and manner, oh my God, as near it as possible. How could she accuse me of a want of regard for her? It was but the other day, Sarah, I said to her, when the little circumstance of the books happened, and I fancied the expressions your sister dropped proved the sincerity of all your kindnesses to me. You don't know how my heart melted within me at the thought that, after all, I might be dear to you. New hopes sprung up in my heart, and I felt as Adam must have done when his Eve was created for him. She had heard enough of that sort of conversation, moving toward the door. This, I own, was the unkindest cut of all. I had in that case no hopes whatever. I felt that I had expended words in vain, that the conversation below stairs, which I told you of when I saw you, had spoiled her taste for mine. If the illusion had been classical, I should have been to blame. But it was scriptural. It was a sort of religious courtship. The Miss L is religious. At once he took his muse and dipped her right in the middle of the scripture. It would not do. The lady could make neither head nor tail of it. This is a poor attempt at levity. Alas, I'm sad enough. Would she go and leave me so? If it was only my own behaviour, I still did not doubt of success. I knew the sincerity of my love, and she would be convinced of it in time. If that was all, I didn't care. But tell me true, is there not a new attachment that this is the real cause of your estrangement? Tell me, my sweet friend, before you tell me, give me your hand, nay, both hands, that I may have something to support me under the dreadful conviction. She let me take her hands in mine, saying, she supposed there could be no objection to that. As if she acted on the suggestions of others, instead of following her own will, but she avoided giving me any answer. I conjured her to tell me the worst, and to kill me on the spot. Anything was better than my present state. I said, Is it, Mr. C? She smiled, and said with gay indifference, Mr. C was here a very short time. Well, then, was it Mr. Blank? She hesitated, and then replied faintly, No. This was a mere trick to mislead, one of the profoundnesses of Satan, in which she is an adept. But, she added hastily, 
she could make no more confidences. Then, said I, you have something to communicate. No, but she had once mentioned a thing of the sort before, which I had hinted to her mother, though it signified little. All this while I was in tortures. Every word, every half-denial stabbed me. Had she any tie? No, I have no tie. You are not going to be married soon. I don't intend ever to marry at all. Can't you be friends with me as old? She could give me no promises. Would she make her own terms? She would make none. I was sadly afraid the little image was dethroned from her heart, as I had dashed it to the ground the other night. She was neither desperate nor violent. I did not answer, but deliberate and deadly, though I might. And so she vanished in this running fight of question and answer, in spite of my vain efforts to detain her. The cockatrice, I said, mocks me, and so has always done. The thought was a dagger to me. My head reeled, my heart recoiled within me. I was stung with scorpions, my flesh crawled. I was choked with rage. Her scorn scorched me like flames. Her air, her heavenly air, withdrawn from me, stifled me, and left me gasping for breath and being. It was a fable. She started up in her own likeness, a serpent in place of a woman. She had fascinated and stung me, and had returned to her proper shape, gliding from me after inflicting the mortal wound and instilling deadly poison into every pore. But her form lost none of, of its original brightness by the change of character, but was all glittering, beauteous, voluptuous grace. Seed of the serpent or of the woman, she was divine. I felt that she was a witch and had bewitched me. Fate had enclosed me round that. I was transformed too, no longer human, any more than she to whom I had knit myself. My feelings were marble. My blood was molten lead, my thoughts on fire. I was taken out of myself, wrapped into another sphere, far from the light of day or hope of love. I had no natural affection left. She had slain me, but no other thing had power over me. Her arms embraced another, but her mock embrace, the phantom of her love, still bound me, and I had not a wish to escape. So I felt then, and so perhaps I shall feel till I grow old and die, nor have any desire that my years should last longer than they are linked in the chain of those amorous folds, or than her enchantment steep my soul in oblivion of all other things. I started to find myself alone, forever alone, without a creature to love me. I looked round the room for help. I saw the tables, the chairs, the places where she stood or sat, empty, deserted, dead. I could not stay where I was. I had no one to go to but to parent mischief. The preternatural hag that had drugged this posset of her daughter's charms and falsehood for me, and I went down, and, such was my weakness and helplessness, sat with her for an hour, and talked with her of her daughter, 
and the sweet days we'd passed together, and said I thought her a good girl, and believed that if there was no rival, she still had a regard for me at the bottom of her heart, and how I liked her all the better for her coy maiden airs. And I received the insurance over and over there was no one else, and that Sarah, they all knew, never stayed five minutes with any other lodger, while with me she would stay by the hour together, in spite of all her father could say to her. What were her motives was best known to herself, and while we were talking of her, she came bounding into the room, smiling with smothered delight at the consummation of my folly and her own art, and I asked her mother whether she thought she looked as if she hated me, and I took her wrinkled, withered, cadaverous, clammy hand a parting and kissed it. Fuh! I will make an end of this story. There is something in it discordant to honest ears. I left the house the next day and returned to Scotland in a state so near to frenzy that I take it the shades sometimes ran into one another. R. met me the day after I arrived, and will tell you the way I was in. I was like a person in a high fever, only mine was in the mind instead of the body. It had the same irritating, uncomfortable effect on the bystanders. I was incapable of any application, and I don't know what I should have done had it not been for your kindness of blank. I came to see you to bestow some of my tediousness upon you. But you were gone from home. Everything went on well as to the law business, and as it approached to a conclusion I wrote to my old friend P to go to M, who had married her sister, and asked him if it would be worth my while to make her a formal offer as soon as I was free, as, with the least encouragement, I was ready to throw myself at her feet, and to know, in case of refusal, whether I might go back there and be treated as an old friend. Not a word of answer could be got from her on either point, notwithstanding every importunity and entreaty, but it was the opinion of M that I might go and try my fortune. I did so with joy and something like confidence. I thought her giving me no positive answer implied a chance, at least, of the reversion of her favour, in case I behaved well. All was false, hollow, insidious. The first night after I got home, I slept on down. In Scotland, the flint had been my pillow. But now I slept under the same roof with her. What softness, what balmy repose in the very thought! I saw her that same day, and shook hands with her, and told her how glad I was to see her. And she was kind and comfortable, though still cold and distant. Her manner was altered from what it had been the last time. She still absented herself from the room, but was mild and affable when she did come. She was pale, dejected, evidently uneasy about something, and had been ill. I thought it was perhaps her reluctance to yield to my wishes, her pity for what I had suffered, and that, in the struggle between both, she did not know what to do. How I worshipped her in these moments! 
We had a long interview on the third day, and I thought all was doing well. I found her sitting at work in the window-seat in the front parlour, and on my asking if I might come in, she made no objection. I sat down by her. She let me take her hand. I talked to her of indifferent things, of old times. I asked her if she would put some new frills on my shirts. With the greatest pleasure. If she could get the little image mended. It was broken in three pieces, and the sword was gone, but she would try. I then asked her to make up a plaid silk, which I had given her in the winter, and which she said would make a pretty summer gown. I so longed to see her in it. She had little time to spare, but perhaps might. Think what I felt, talking peaceably, kindly, tenderly with my love, not passionately, not violently. I tried to take pattern by her patient meekness, as I thought it, and to subdue my desires to her will. I then sued to her, but respectfully, to be admitted to her friendship. She must know I was as true a friend as ever woman had, or if there was a bar to our intimacy from a dearer attachment, to let me know it frankly, as I showed her all my heart. She drew out her handkerchief and wiped her eyes of tears which sacred pity had engendered there. Was it so or not? I cannot tell. But so she stood while I pleaded my cause to her with all the earnestness and fondness in the world, and the tears trickling from her eyelashes, her head stooping, her attitude fixed, with the finest expression that ever was seen of mixed regret, pity, and stubborn resolution. But without speaking a word, without altering a feature, it was like a petrification of a human face in the softest moment of passion. Ah! I said, how you look! I have prayed again and again while I was away from you, in the agony of my spirit, that I might but live to see you look so again, and then breathe my last. I entreated her to give me some explanation. In vain. At length she said she must go, and disappeared like a spirit. That week she did all the little trifling favours I had asked of her. The frills were put on, and she sent out to know if I wanted any more done. She got the Bonaparte mended. This was like healing old wounds indeed. How? As follows, for thereby hangs the conclusion of my tale. Listen. I had sent a message one evening to speak to her about some special affairs of the house, and received no answer. I waited an hour, expecting her, and then went out in great vexation at my disappointment. I complained to her mother a day or two after, saying I thought it so unlike Sarah's usual propriety of behaviour, that she must mean it as a mark of disrespect. Mrs. L. said, La, sir, you're always fancying things. Why, she was dressing to go out, and she was only going to get the little image you're both so fond of mended. And it's to be done this evening. She's been to two or three places to see about it, before she could get anyone to undertake it. My heart 
my poor fond heart almost melted within me at the news. I answered, Ah, madam, that's always the way with the dear creature. I am finding fault with her, and thinking the hardest things of her, and at that very time she is doing something to show the most delicate attention, and that she has no greater satisfaction than in gratifying my wishes. On this we had some further talk, and I took nearly the whole of the lodgings at a hundred guineas a year, that, as I said, she might have a little leisure to sit at her needle of an evening, or to read if she chose, or to walk out when it was fine. She was not in good health, and it would do her good to be less confined. I would be the drudge, and she would no longer be the slave. I asked nothing in return. To see her happy, to make her so, was to be so myself. This was agreed to. I went over to Blackheath that evening, delighted, as I could be after all I had suffered, and lay the whole of the next morning on the heath under the open sky, dreaming of my earthly goddess. This was Sunday. That evening I returned, for I could hardly bear to be for a moment out of the house where she was, and the next morning she tapped at the door. It was opened. It was she. She hesitated, and then came forward. She had got the little image in her hand. I took it and blessed her from my heart. She said, they had been obliged to put some new pieces to it. I said I didn't care how it was done, so that I had it restored to me safe and by her. I thanked her and begged to shake hands with her. She did so, and as I held the only hand in the world that I never wished to let go, I looked up in her face and said, Have pity on me. Have pity on me and save me if you can. Not a word of answer, but she looked full in my eyes as much to say, Well, I'll think of it, and if I can, I will save you. We talked about the expense of repairing the figure. Was the man waiting? No, she'd fetched it on Saturday evening. I said I'd give her the money in the course of the day, and then shook hands with her again in token of reconciliation. And she went, waving out of the room, but at the door turned round and looked full at me, as she did the first time she beguiled me of my heart. This was the last. All that day I longed to go downstairs to ask her and her mother to set out with me for Scotland on Wednesday, and on Saturday I would make her my wife. Something withheld me. In the evening, however, I could not rest without seeing her, and I said to her younger sister, Betsy, if Sarah will come up now, I'll pay her what she'd laid out for me the other day. My sister's gone out, sir was the answer. What again? thought I. That's somewhat sudden. I told P. her sitting in the window seat of the front parlour boded me no good. It was not in her old character. She did not used to know there were doors or windows of the house. And now she goes out three times in a week. It is to meet someone. 
I'll lay my life on't. Where is she gone? To my grandmother's, sir. Where does your grandmother live now? At Somerstown. I immediately set out for Somerstown. I passed one or two streets, and at last turned up King Street, thinking it most likely she would return that way home. I passed a house in King Street, where I had once lived, and had not proceeded many paces, ruminating on chance and change and old times, when I saw her coming towards me. I felt a strange pang at the sight, but I thought her alone. Some people before me moved on, and I saw another person with her. The murder was out. It was a tall, rather well-looking young man, but I did not at first recollect him. We passed at the crossing of the street without speaking. Will you believe it? After all that had passed between us for two years, after what had passed in the last half-year, after what had passed that very morning, she went by me without even changing countenance, without expressing the slightest emotion, without betraying either shame or pity or remorse, or any other feeling that any other human being but herself must have shown in the same situation. She had no time to prepare for acting a part to suppress her feelings. The truth is, she has not one natural feeling in her bosom to suppress. I turned and looked. They also turned and looked, and as if by mutual consent we both retrod our steps and passed again, in the same way. I went home. I was stifled. I could not stay in the house. Walked into the street, met them coming toward home. As soon as he'd left her at the door, I fancy she had prevailed with him to accompany her, dreading some violence. I returned, went upstairs, and requested an interview. Tell her, I said, I am in excellent temper and good spirits, but I must see her. She came smiling and said, and I said, Come in, my dear girl, and sit down, and tell me all about it, how it is and who it is. What? she said. Do you mean Mr. C? Oh, said I, then it is he. Oh, you rogue. I always suspected there was something between you, but you know you denied it lustily. Why did you not tell me about it at the time, instead of letting me suffer as I have done? But, however, no reproaches. I only wish it may all end happily and honourably for you, and I am satisfied. But, I said, you know you used to tell me you despised looks. She didn't think Mr. C was so particularly handsome. No, but he's very well to pass, and a well-grown youth into the bargain. Sure. Let me put an end to the fulsome detail. I found he had lived over the way, that he had been lured thence, no doubt almost a year before that they had first spoken in the street, and that he had never once hinted at marriage, and had gone away, because, as he said, they were too much together, and that it was better for her to meet him occasionally out of doors. There could be no harm in them walking together. No, but you may go somewhere afterwards. One must trust to one's principle for that. Consummate 
hypocrite. I told her Mr. M., who married her sister, did not wish to leave the house. I, who would have married her, did not wish to leave it. I told her I hoped I should not live to see her come to shame after all my love of her, but put her on guard as well as I could, and said, after the length she had permitted herself with me, I could not help being alarmed at the influence of one over her, whom she could hardly herself suppose to have a tenth part of my esteem for her. She made no answer to this, but thanked me coldly for my good advice, and rose to go. I begged her to sit a few minutes, that I might try to recollect if there was anything else I wished to say to her, perhaps for the last time, and then, not finding anything, I bade her good night, and asked for a farewell kiss. Do you know she refused? So little does she understand what is due to friendship, or love, or honour. We parted friends, however, and I felt deep grief, but no enmity against her. I thought C. had pressed his suit after I went, and he had prevailed. There was no harm in that. A little fickleness or so, a little over-pretension to unalterable attachment. But that was all. She liked him better than me. It was my hard hap. But I must bear it. I went out to roam the desert streets, when, turning a corner, whom should I meet but her very lover? I went up to him and asked him for a few minutes' conversation on a subject that was highly interesting to me, and I believe not indifferent to him. And in the course of four hours' talk it came out that for three months previous to my quitting London for Scotland she had been playing the same game with him as with me, that he had breakfasted first and enjoyed an hour of her society, and then I took my turn so that we never jostled. And this explained why, when he came back sometimes, and passed my door, as she was sitting in my lap, she coloured violently, thinking if her lover looked in, what a denouement there would be. He could not help again and again expressing his astonishment at finding that our intimacy had continued unimpaired up to so late a period after he came and when they were on the most intimate footing. She used to deny positively to him that there was anything between us, just as she used to assure me with impenetrable effrontery that Mr. C. was nothing to her but merely a lodger. All this while she kept up the farce of her romantic attachment to her old lover, vowed that she never could alter in that respect let me go to Scotland on the solemn and repeated assurance that there was no new flame, that there was no bar between us but this shadowy love. I leave her on this understanding. She becomes more fond or more intimate with a new lover. He, quitting the house, whether tired out or not, I can't say. In revenge, she ceases to write to me, keeps me in wretched suspense, treats me like something loathsome to her. When I return to inquire, the cause denies it with scorn and impudence, destroys me and shows me no pity, no desire to soothe or shorten the pangs she has occasioned by her wantonness and hypocrisy, and wishes to linger in the affair to the last moment, 
going out to keep an appointment with another, while she pretends to be obliging me in the tenderest point, which C. himself said was too much. What do you think of all this? Shall I tell you my opinion? But I must try to do it in another letter. To the same. In conclusion. I did not sleep a wink all that night, nor did I know till the next day the full meaning of what had happened to me. With the morning's light, conviction glared in upon me that I had not only lost her for ever, but every feeling I ever had towards her. Respect, tenderness, pity, all but my fatal passion was gone. The whole was a mockery, a frightful illusion. I had embraced the false Florimel instead of the true, or was like the man in the Arabian Nights who married a ghoul. How different was the idea I once had of her! Was this she who had been beguiled, she who was made within a gentle bosom to be laid, to bless and to be blessed, to be heart bare to one who found his bettered likeness there? to think for ever with him like a bride, to haunt his eye like taste personified, to double his delight, to share his sorrow, and like a morning beam wake him every morrow. I saw her pale, cold form glide silent by me, dead to shame as to pity. Still I seemed to clasp this piece of witchcraft to my bosom, this lifeless image, which was all that was left of my love, was the only thing to which my sad heart clung. Were she dead, should I not wish to gaze once more upon her pallid features? She is dead to me, but what she once was to me can never die. The agony, the conflict of hope and fear, of adoration and jealousy is over, or it would ere long have ended with my life. I am no more lifted now to heaven, and then plunged in the abyss, but I seem to have been thrown from the top of a precipice, and to lie grovelling, stunned and stupefied. I am melancholy, lonesome, and weaker than a child. The worst is I have no prospect of any alteration for the better. She has cut off all possibility of a reconciliation at any future period. Were she even to return to her former pretended fondness and endearments, I could have no pleasure, no confidence in them. I can scarce make out the contradiction to myself. I strive to think she always was what I now know she is, but I have great difficulty in it, and I can hardly believe but she still is what she so long seemed. Poor thing! I am afraid she is little better off herself, nor do I see what is become of her, unless she throws off the mask at once, and runs amuck at infamy. She is exposed and laid bare to all those whose opinion she set a value upon. Yet she held her head very high, and must feel, if she feels anything, proportionably mortified. A more complete experiment on character was never made. If I had not met her lover immediately after I had parted with her, it would have been nothing. I might have supposed that she had changed her mind in my absence, 
and had given him the preference as soon as she felt it, and even shown her delicacy in declining any farther intimacy with me. But it comes out that she had gone on with the most forward and familiar way with both at once. She could not change her mind in passing from one room to another, told both the same bare-faced and unblushing falsehoods, like the commonest creature, received presents from me to the very last, and wished to keep up the game still longer, either to gratify her humour, her avarice, her vanity in playing with my passion, or to have me as a denier resort in case of accidents. Again, it would have been nothing if she had not come up with her demure, well-composed, wheedling looks that morning, and then met me in the evening in a situation which, she believed, might kill me on the spot, with no more feeling than a common courtesan shows, who bilks a customer and passes him, leering at her bully the moment after. If there had been a frailty of passion, it would have been excusable, but it's evident that she is practised, callous, jilt, a regular lodging-house decoy, played off by her mother upon lodgers, one after another, applying them to her different purposes, laughing at them in turns, and herself the probable dupe and victim of some favourite gallant in the end. I know all this, but what do I gain by it? unless I could find someone with her shape and air to supply the place of the lovely apparition. That a professed wanton should come and sit on a man's knee, put her arms around his neck and caress him, and seem fond of him, means nothing, proves nothing. No one concludes anything from it. But that a pretty, reserved, modest, delicate-looking girl should do this, from the first hour to the last of your being in the house, without intending anything by it, is new, and I think worth explaining. It was, I confess, out of my calculation, and maybe out of that of others. Her unmoved indifference and self-possession all the while show that it is her constant practice. Her look, even, if closely examined, bears this interpretation. It is that of studied hypocrisy or startled guilt, rather than refined sensibility or conscious innocence. She defied anyone to read her thoughts, she once told me. Do they then require concealing? I imprudently asked her. The command over herself is surprising. She never once betrays herself by any momentary forgetfulness, by any appearance of triumph or superiority to the person who is her dupe, by any levity of manner, in the plenitude of her success. It is one faultless, undeviating, consistent, consummate piece of acting. Were she a saint on earth, she could not seem more like one. Her hypocritical, high-flown pretensions indeed make her the worse, but still the ascendancy of her will, her determined perseverance in what she undertakes to do, has something admirable in it approaching to the heroic. She is certainly an extraordinary girl. Her retired manner and invariable propriety of behaviour made me think it next to impossible she could grant the same favours indiscriminately to everyone as she did to me. 
yet this now appears to be the fact. She must have done the very same with C, invited him into the house to carry on a closer intrigue with her, and then commenced the double game, with both together. She always despised looks. This was a favourite phrase with her, and one of the hooks which she baited for me. Nothing could win her but a man's behaviour and sentiments. Besides, she could never like another. She was a martyr to disappointed affection, and friendship was all she could even extend to any other man. All the time she was making signals, playing off her pretty person, and having occasional interviews in the street with this very man, whom she could only have taken so sudden and a violent liking to him from his looks, his personal appearance, and what she probably conjectured of his circumstances. Her sister had married a counsellor. The Miss F.'s, who kept the house before, had done so too, and so would she. There was a precedent for it, yet if she was so desperately enamoured of this new acquaintance, if he had displaced the little image from her breast, if he was become her second, unalterable attachment, which I should have given my life to have been, why continue the same unwarrantable familiarities with me to the last, and promise that they should be renewed upon my return, if I had not unfortunately stumbled upon the truth to her aunt, and yet keep up the same refined cant about her old attachment all the time, as if it was that which stood in the way of my pretensions? and not her faithlessness to it. If one swerves from one, one shall swerve from another, was her excuse for not returning my regard. Yet that which I thought a prophecy was, I suspect, a history. She had swerved twice from her avowed engagements, first to me, and then from me to another. If she made a fool of me, what did she make of her lover? I fancy he has put that question to himself. I said nothing to him about the amount of the presents, which is another damning circumstance. That might have opened my eyes long before, but they were shut by my fond affection, which turned all to favour and to prettiness. She cannot be supposed to have kept up an appearance of old regard to me from a fear of hurting my feelings by her desertion, for she had not only showed herself indifferent to, but evidently triumphed in my sufferings, and heaped every kind of insult and indignity upon them. I must have incurred her contempt and resentment by my mistaken delicacy at different times, and her manner, when I have hinted at becoming a reformed man in this respect, convinces me of it. She hated it. She always hated what she liked most. She hated Mr. C.'s red slippers when he first came. One more count finishes the indictment. She not only discovered the most hardened indifference to the feelings of others, she has not only shown the least regard to her own character, or shame when she was detected. When found out, she seemed to say, Well, what if I am? I have played the game as long as I could, and if I could keep it up no longer, it was not for the want of good will. Her colouring once or twice is the only sign of grace she has exhibited. Such is the creature on whom I had thrown away my heart and soul. 
one who was incapable of feeling the commonest emotions of human nature, as they regarded herself or any one else. She had no feelings with respect to herself, she often said. She in fact knows what she is, and recoils from the good opinion or sympathy of others, which she feels to be founded on deception, so that my overweening opinion of her must have appeared like irony or a direct insult. My seeing her in the street has gone a good way to satisfy me. Her manner there explains her manner indoors, to be conscious and overdone, and besides she looks but indifferently. She is diminutive in stature, and her measured step and timid air do not suit these public airings. I am afraid that she will soon grow common to my imagination as well as worthless in herself. Her image seems fast, going into the wastes of time, like a weed that the wave bears farther and farther from me. Alas, thou poor hapless weed, when I entirely lose sight of thee for ever, no flower will ever bloom on earth to glad my heart again. The End of Liber Amoris or the New Pygmalion by William Hazlitt Read by Nick Duncan